Hey everybody, Luke here. Uh, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. If you want to sign up for a free uh, trial, we've got a link in the description below. It would help support the podcast and it would be a real nice gift for yourself. Uh, if you sign up there, you get one free book for the month. Um, if you cancel, you get to keep that book. Right now, I'm listening to Atomic Habits by James Clear, um, which is great. Get a lot out of it. Um, if you cancel after the month, like I said, it's going to cost you nothing. Um, so give it a go. It's a really great way to, to spend the time when you're going for your walks on lockdown or whatever. Um, but today on the podcast, we've got Devin Hughes. Devin is the founder and CEO of Buy Me. Um, it's an application that's going to make it really, really easy to buy your groceries online. Skip all that queues outside <laughs> Lidl and Tesco that are happening right now and just uh, get that delivered right to your door. So they've raised a lot of money. They're they're growing rapidly especially in these covid lockdown times um it's a great time to be uh, in the grocery business and davin really uh, digs into how he came up with the idea how the business is going now and also the bright future that the business has so if you're interested in tech entre- entrepreneurship in ireland this one's going to be for you and if you want to support the podcast there is a link uh, to the free trial of audible uh, in the description all right here we go Welcome to the Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts, Luke Curry and Mark Baker. What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to the Shark Pod here uh, with myself, Luke Curry and Mark Baker. Uh, we're still remote, we're still on lockdown, kind of. Things are opening up a little bit, uh, which is all uh, good news. Um, we've got Devin Hughes on the line here, uh, founder and CEO of Buy Me, a grocery uh, delivery uh, service that I've used myself for the first time yesterday. They're uh, going to deliver today. Um, and I'm, if, if, we can, if this is something that we can really get right, it's going to make people's lives so much better. I was just saying to uh, Devin before we uh, started here today that I ordered uh, groceries for the first time online today. Um, and I I never want to go and see the inside of a, a supermarket ever again. I I hate lining, especially now you're lining up in the in the in the rain to get in. You're, for que- you're queuing outside and you're queuing inside. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and then there's all this stuff. So here's another thing um, that is this going to improve as well when I was this is just some feedback when I was uh, when I was scrolling through I can get exactly what I want and I don't have to be at the whims of uh, whatever the the merchandising has been so there's less pastries in my basket there's less uh, you know three for one muffins that I'm uh, that I yeah, don't the impulse really purchases uh, yeah. a little bit less right yeah so it's um and it's something that I get the same stuff every every week do you know what I mean it's yeah. there's no reason why I have to go queue up anyway. So I'm very excited about the, this business and especially right now, um, because of uh, the, the changes in the way people are, are shopping generally. Um, it's got to be an uptrend for you. But maybe just give w- would you mind giving the uh, the listeners a bit of a, a background about you and maybe just the the business when it started um, and and where it is right now. Sure. Um, yeah. So I'll give you I'll give you the, the overview of the company first, um, and then tell you how I found myself in this mess. Um, so Buy Me is a free to download app across iOS and Android, um, and it allows consumers to order grocery and household items from large retail partners like Tesco and Little Today, and have their items delivered store to door in as little as an hour by their very own personal shopper. And so, my background is surprise, surprise, not grocery or technology. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, so I spent the vast majority of my career working in the energy markets. Um, and Bayou is actually my fifth uh, startup. So I've, I've had four spectacular failures nice. um, that have gotten me to this point um, to date. Um, I started working on Buy Me actually in 2014, which sounds, feels like a lifetime ago uh, now that I say that. Um, I was getting the itch. I'd taken a break after my fourth failure in a row. I decided to get a real job. Uh, with a company um, to find out what a what an actual functioning business looked like. And I spent two and a half years working in the energy sector with a, in a subsidiary of uh, Glencore, which is one of the largest commodity traders in the world. I was starting to get the itch again to go out and kind of crack out on my own. And I wanted to move into technology, having never been in the tech sector before. I wanted to get into technology because I knew that I'd be able to scale something faster and cheaper, essentially out of my living room, without massive capex uh, to begin with. And I was kind of sick of the energy industry. It requires massive capital investment, wind farms and solar farms and CHP generators, et cetera. Um, and so I started taking days off work. I call them innovation days. And I'd sit at home and I'd just read reports from all sorts of different sectors, trying to look for trends, trying to look for opportunities, whatever I could. Um, and uh, all my efforts yielded uh, zip in, in, the, <laughs> in the area of ideas. And then over a pint in the Gingerman pub in Dublin, uh, someone mentioned to me that did I know that the online grocery market was uh, worth £9 billion across Ireland and the UK, but it was losing £300 million a year. That was the aggregate loss of this enormous market. And I thought to myself, Christ, you know, that's almost as big as a commodity market. You know, The residential electricity market for the UK is £13 billion. Yeah. I couldn't believe how large it was. I, I'd never, I had no idea. And the, the idea that this enormous market was completely dysfunctional in nature kind of fascinated me. Um, and so I took one of my days and I ended up just reading every grocery report I could find. Um, and sure enough, uh, my, my friend was correct. It was, it was losing 300 million pounds a year. Uh, that was the aggregate losses all being subsidized by the grocery retail sector. Um, and I essentially just found myself completely obsessed by just how how inefficient the distribution network for this model was. Um, you know, my background in energy, I, I, I was used to, you know, one market analysis and two, understanding that the distribution of commodity around a market is done through decentralized shared infrastructures, one gas network, one electricity network. But grocery had built nine separate distribution networks across across um, the UK and Ireland. You had the Tesco network, Sainsbury's network, you know, et cetera, et cetera, Caddo's. Um, and so I... Um, yeah, I realized that actually there was a, there was a whole other opportunity here to, to build something quite different. And Devin, what what do you think was really the the biggest inefficiency there? Was it just because they all they had to do all the investment and all the like the total integration of the whole thing? They tried to own everything. Is that is that the way? Is that what was just too expensive for them to do that? Or where is that coming? Yeah. So, so the the primary issue is is that it's vertically integrated, um, and and. So I suppose this is this can very quickly become an economics discussion yeah, yeah. and not just not just a business discussion yeah. because um bear me once. Sorry. Yeah, that's <laughs> um so the way to think about it is this you have Okay, this is how I'll frame it. Okay. Over the last twenty, well, fifteen years or so. 20 years, we'll say, we have seen a global shift in the way economic activity is managed. 
Okay, so we came from an organizational economy of the 20th century, where most economic activity was being managed by large single institutions. So your Tesco's, your Ford Motor Companies, uh, your General Electric's, you know, these big corporations that had, you know, been spun out of the Industrial Revolution, they acted as these aggregators uh, of labor, the ag aggregators of um, commercial enterprise, but mostly collected data within their local markets uh, to facilitate, you know, transactions. Um, and what's happened over the last 20 years is that technology, the rise of the internet, but most importantly, the rise of platforms has created an entirely different economic model, and that is platform economics. Um, and so when you look at the likes of uh, the traditional organization models, most of these businesses are linear by nature. So they have a, a, certain, a certain way and economic structure to them. And, and most of that is driven by uh, what most people know, which is Boston Consulting's um, economies of scale curve. So everyone knows this concept, economies of scale. What most people think about economies of scale is that they, they know that the bigger you get, the lower your costs get, right? That's yeah. economies of scale. But actually, most people don't realize that economies of scale is a curve. So for linear businesses, the bigger you get, the lower your costs get. But at a certain point as a linear business, the curve starts to go back up like this. And no matter how big you get, your costs can, you know, you bottom out. And this is mainly driven by things like marginal cost, competitive uh, competitive uh, strain from other players in the market, et cetera. And so um, what's happened with platforms is that now we have data-driven platforms that sit above marketplaces, above industries, not within them. Yeah. And they collect local economic information uh, in, in, in a rapid fashion. And then they process that with high-frequency algorithms to connect stakeholders. And that's essentially what's happening now, right? Um, and so when you look at these kind of you know, retail models, when it came to, to distribution, they were taking vertically integrated models where they were buying vans, warehouses, building their own network of, of, of uh, distribution centers, all trying to do the same thing. Uh, when an ultimate fashion is that the only way to actually efficient, efficiently distribute commodity market markets through centralized, de sorry, decentralized uh, networks. That's why we have one shared electricity network, one shared gas network, one road network. You know, these these are all like all of these uh, shared infrastructures is what retailers use traditionally. But when it came to online, for some reason, they decided no, we have to be we have to be the we have to we have to build our own from scratch. Um, and so what you ended up is a massively capitally inefficient model, um, which requires huge resources um, and ultimately isn't actually profitable um, for individual stakeholders. And when you think about it. The difference between a platform uh, economic model versus a linear traditional uh, commercial model is if the best way to do it is to think about the grocery sector. And I always use the grocery sector as an analogy because it's really good. It's one of the most fundamental markets. You know, that's why right now it's good to be in a couple of industries. It's good to be in communication. It's good to be in energy. It's good to be in uh, food because these are the fundamentals, regardless of what happens around this, around you know society. These are the things that that everybody needs. For sure. Um, and if you think about the grocery sector, it's 250 billion euro market, give or take a couple of billion uh, for Ireland, UK. It's, it's one of the largest consumer markets. Incredibly Go ahead. Big. It's incredibly big. That's Yeah, incredibly big, right? Who's the biggest player in this market? Tesco, perhaps, or? Correct. You know, yeah. what's, what's their market cap? What are they worth? Um, if they're the largest player, many people know this, many people in the industry don't even think about this. Yeah. So, if you're the largest player in a 250 billion euro market, how much do you think they're worth? The largest player, 250 billion. That's just Ireland UK. They have operations in Europe and Asia, but let's just think about Ireland UK. What do you think they're worth? Say if they're the biggest, maybe, what do you think, Mark? Maybe 50 billion or something market cap? Mm. That is a shot. In the no back. idea. Go on. <laughs> yeah. 23. 
23. 23 billion. The largest player in a 250 billion euro market is, is worth 23 billion. And now they're going head to head with a platform, Amazon, which is a trillion dollar gorilla, four times the size of the entire market combined. That's insane. Wow. And that's the difference between organizational economy and platform economy. Those two companies can be used to actually weigh up the biggest player in a linear um, you know, organizational economy versus the bigger, the biggest player you can get to at a, in, a, in a platform economic model. Um, and so these, these are the dynamics that, that you know, we were looking at very early on in about 2014, thinking about that this market is going to shift quite significantly uh, over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And this, I'm, to be very honest, I just thought this could be a really, really cool place to spend a decade or two of my career. I love that kind of long-term thinking as well because in 2014, it's hard to, sometimes we talk to people in the podcast before and sometimes it's hard to remember what things were like in different uh, epochs or whatever. So everyone thinks that it's been like this for a long time, but sometimes we were talking about like, um, like last week when we were talking about Lima, we were talking about Bebo in 2006 or something, how different we treated that, (laughs) where it was all just for fun. We'd put up awful things, awful jokes or whatever. And it was not like you had your real life and that was just some, you know, <laughs> something for yeah. to share with your friends for a laugh. But now that's actually your your online presence is is, is who you are now, or who you're absolutely. Be, you know, I mean, all of, all of that's all of that stuff was precursor, right? Yeah. So Bebo was the education that our generation got to uh, crafting online identity. Yeah. And now you know that was just the precursor that that set the stage for the Instagram. That set the stage for Facebook. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a terrific book out there called Modern Monopolies: How to Dominate in the 21st Century. And uh, talking specifically a lot around platforming comics, actually, but it talks around how Friendster and MySpace, um, where where they failed and why Facebook succeeded, but ultimately, you know, how these platforms essentially educated uh, the consumer market and really set the stage. You know, sometimes being first to market is not always the right, you know, play, and yeah. a lot of it for us even. Um, a lot of people ask, you know, well, how do you know customers are going to adopt your service? How, you know, is there not going to be a huge amount of education? It's like, well, I mean, consumers have been the blue dot on a map for a variety of services for the past, you know, five to 10 years in Ireland, the UK. We have had Halo, we've had Deliveroo, we've had Just Eat. Yeah. You know, we're very used to being that blue dot where everything comes to us. So the education piece actually is not that, not that significant of a, of a, of a crevasse. I think as, as well, even with the, the first time using the app, um, like, it was, it was very intuitive it was just i you didn't have to teach me how to to, to do anything i just went on as if i'd always used it do you know what i mean yeah it's just eat it's absolutely just like anything else i know not uh in ireland but anywhere i went in the world uber uh i, I remember thinking i'm not going to get into a car with a stranger do you remember that thought actually when i heard <laughs> about that i'm like who this guy who's kind of looking after this anyway but um how things change so my point is that in five years people will maybe these uh grocery stores will be maybe half full with people why would they go to the grocery store it makes no sense right so i this is this is interesting i can very quickly be seen as someone who's you know predicting the end of retail i actually don't think retail disappears Okay. I think what, what we're seeing within grocery, uh, FMCG, uh, fast moving consumer goods, is that we're seeing a resegmentation of the market. And that, that has, has, I suppose, longer term implications, um, but, but isn't necessarily death of one over the other. I think ultimately grocery retail is going to continue to evolve into something different. And it may not be as big of a primary market. And actually, we talk about, you know, we assume people always do these things forever, right? The self-service grocery model is a hundred and 
four years old, right? Yeah. So the very first self-service supermarket was the Piggly Wiggly in Tennessee, um, founded by a guy called Clarence Saunders. Um, and that was the first time um, someone decided to pile it high, sell it low, and let the customer do all the work. Because up until that point, you would go to the baker, the the dairy maker, and you would collect all your and aggregate your own products, or they'd bag it for you at the te- at the desk, and you'd stand at the desk. This was the normal kind of small grocer uh, model, but the self service supermarket model became a whole innovation of itself, and um, it spun out of the U.S. and um, through the through the the the, the early, uh, late 1900s, and um, and that became the go to model for for global grocery. Um, and and so what's really interesting is that that mark that model has continued to be the predominant uh, way in which uh, grocers have approached the market for for the last hundred years. And the challenge that that creates is that the grocery model has become all about cost based pricing uh, and cost based experience. So. You know, you arrive to a grocery store, you go to this side of the warehouse to get your milk. You go to that side of the warehouse to get your uh, your bread. The merchandising gets you to buy everything in between. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, grocers are really tight for margins, so they can't afford to staff every checkout. So now that we're going to put self-checkouts in, we want you to check yourself out. Yes. So this is another piece of work that we want you to do. And don't forget to bring that trolley back or I'll keep your fucking euro. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So this this whole experience that we as consumers have been trained, educated around has been around this cost based pricing. And, and if you talk to any economist, when you strip away all metrics of value from an experience, from a market, from an industry, you will always have one metric that remains price. Yeah. That becomes the, the, the predominant deterrent. You know, how does a consumer determine value? Uh, well, if there's nothing else that I can take into account. Price becomes the only uh, the only term, and, and that has put the industry into this really race to the bottom kind of very tight margin, very similar to the electricity market. It's commoditized, mm. and and so with that, it becomes a really really challenging environment, particularly when you start to face consumer shifts like we are today, yeah. um, and when you have no margin in your business, it's very hard to craft new models. It's very hard to build new infrastructure because you're kind of curtailed by the existing model, the hundred years um, of of uh, of thinking that's been built into that. Um, and so now what we have is a resegmentation, which is quite interesting, where you have new uh, disruptor channels starting to really gain uh, what we would call share of stomach. So you have Just Eat, the Deliveroo's, making hot food delivery incredibly easily, very convenient, um, uh, particularly for a younger generation who typically have two household incomes, you know, busy projects, kids, crash, all the rest of it goes with it. Convenience has become the name of the game. And so you've had the rise of this restaurant hot food delivery space across the world, uh, making it easier to get restaurants. And that ultimately steals money out of grocery. Um, you have meal kit deliveries. You know, we have the HelloFresh, the Gustos, this other option where for people who are a bit more kind of um, maybe a little bit more um, specific in their, in, their, in their requirements or, you know, like the idea of cooking but hate the idea of the grocery store. Um, as I said earlier on, you know, the average consumer will spend five and a half days a year trolling the odds of a grocery store. It's hard to break of Yeah, right. 20% <laughs> of your annual leave yeah. spent in a, in a supermarket sounds pretty awful. Uh, but a lot of people are only starting to really start to recognize this, this time value cost. Um, and so this resegmentation is again creating a, a new dynamic in the market. And what you'll see grocers start to look as is, is looking to become more experiential. 
And that's where you start, you know, they'll start to have more craft butchers. I don't know if you guys have been to Dunn stores at Cornell's Court, for example. Yeah. Perfect example of experiential retailing. You know, they have the craft butchers, they have this beautiful cheese, cheesemongers, and 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 they've also brought in homeware, they've bought coffee shops. Like it's all, all about creating this almost this mini shopping center yeah. uh, in a grocery store. And I think that's that's that retail that, that retail model will continue to evolve. Um and, and I think the online as a channel will mature and it will segment also because you'll have two types of delivery and, and we sit within one channel. We sit within large basket, same day delivery. That's really where our sweet spot is. And um, of course, our customers can order a couple of days, seven days in the future, but same day large basket is typically what we do. And it's usually delivered three to four hours after it's been ordered. Then you'll have the likes of your Uber Eats, your Deliveroo, which will focus on hyper convenience. These are like the Eurospar or the Centra or the Londis of, uh, of the online delivery market where you'll have average 28-minute delivery times. And this will be for small baskets, 20, 25 euros, uh, emergency toothbrush, I rip my tights, um, you know, yeah. I need a bottle of wine or yeah. something like that. Um, so the, it, it's very interesting to think about how this market is starting to shift, um, you know, primarily based on one technology, uh, the, the input of platform uh, uh, economics and, and also consumer behavior shifts due to re-education do you know what i find really interesting as well that this is all coming at a time where where we're kind of reassessing how we buy things as well a lot of the stuff's going to be online for for now because we can't leave our house or couldn't leave our house really for the last few weeks um but people say okay maybe i don't have to go do this anymore like i said I've, we've been using uh, just eat way more than we used to do you know what I mean? Uh, and yesterday sure. we, we tried to order chips, but the, the chipper that we liked wasn't on that. So we just didn't, we just went somewhere else. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, it's all changing like that. But one, one thing I did want to run by you as well. Do you know when you, you were talking about the, the kind of the, the big gorilla Amazon coming into the market and stuff? When you heard that, was that like a, a light, like a, a green light for you to say, okay, now people are going to get this? They're almost doing a little bit of the the global education on this. Like this is, they're making this the, the way. The, future people will so, this, uh, these products. So uh, Amazon was still not really doing much. 2014, so give you the timelines of how this how this kind of market has unfolded and how yep. we found ourselves in this space. Uh, 2014, um, there's still uh, Amazon still wasn't heavy in grocery. They had done Amazon Fresh. They were testing stuff in in the US, and they had almost nothing going on in in in, in the UK. And um, we, I quit the energy job, uh, energy markets. And I realized I needed to get a job in technology because no CEO, no no investor was going to take me seriously as a tech CEO or co-founder with no background in technology. And so I tried to find you know the best platform business I could go and work for because I want to understand one what a platform company looks like um, in terms of its infrastructure it's running. Two, I just wanted to build some credibility. So when people ask me what my background is, I had some relevancy because although I understand that my energy background, market analysis, you know, commodity distribution background is totally relevant. That's a bit of a stretch for a lot of people. It takes too long to explain to an investor. You get a very short window to really connect. So I knew that if I could say, well, I work for a Fortune 500 technology company, that would tick the box very quickly and get me in the next meeting. Um, so I went and worked for Salesforce for a year to the week. I did, and I called it a master's in platform. Um, and so I went there and I, uh, by pure fluke, I got placed on their strategy, enterprise strategy team. And I got to work in the FMCG and automotive uh, verticals. Nice. And that was just by pure coincidence. Yeah. So I got to spend a year uh, one learning everything there is to know about platform, design, architecture, structure, um, but also got to work with uh, the likes of Unilever and Coca-Cola to understand how platform is transforming their internal operations, their business. Um, Twenty uh, during that time, I uh, kind of you know built the pro uh, built a small founding team, 
we pulled together the, the MVT, MVP, the prototype of, of the binary platform. I raised 100,000 euros pre-seed capital, uh, friends and family, Enterprise Ireland, and like one angel investor, probably the only angel investor I knew at that stage. Um, and we launched into the market in February 2016. I quit and became my very first grocery delivery person. Um, and for the first 16 to 18 months, I was doing growth. I was a grocery delivery person. That was basically all the business was. That's all it was. It was one. It was me and and, and one other guy, um, uh, uh, Shane, who still works with us today. Uh, we were doing the grocery orders. Five weeks after we launched, I had one of the largest retailers in the market threaten me with legal action and injunction to shut the business down because they saw us as a threat. I totally miss misunderstood the dynamics that retail had and the mindsets that were in the market at that time. I was there to help retail, but they saw us as a threat. That's what I was saying. Um, like they were basically being an extra sales channel for these guys. In, in a yeah, way. we were shifting product. Exactly. Um, and that's how I perceived it, but they perceived it as, you know, if we can't, it's what big corporate does, you know, is if we can't control it, we don't understand it, kill it and move on. You know, we'll still be a billion euro business. Yeah. Um, and so they, they went into seek and destroy mode, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. Um, and we had to navigate around that as a small little business, you know, a flea uh, on the on the back of the elephant. We had to very carefully navigate that terrain. Um, now, you know, I'll skip some of the some of the more intricate pieces, but you fast forward a little bit. Um, you know, we managed to build up relationships with other stakeholders, the market, primarily the brand side of the market, like so Unilever, Coca-Cola, P&G. We got to learn a little bit about the challenges that they were facing. We realized some value that we'd be able to bring to them in terms of insights, advertising, et cetera. So we built out our proposition a bit more. But in late 2017, Amazon bought Whole Foods. Okay. And that, comp that if I was to say there was ever a catalyst event, if I was to say, okay, you know, 2014, I realized that, you know, the way if you if you looked at it from an economist standpoint, when you have a rapidly expanding market, heavily compounding losses, and a short window of time, free market economics guarantees you that that sector will experience disruption in one shape or form. It's guaranteed because free markets will not tolerate that level of inefficiency. Yeah. And so we knew that there was a disruption coming. And I would say that the Amazon Whole Foods deal was definitely a, it wasn't the disruption because a disruption happens um, through a number of different events, but it was definitely a catalyst event, I think, to reshape the, the global industry uh, perspective in terms of what the trajectory of online grocery might be. Um, and we found ourselves four months after, you know, we struck up a relationship with the largest grocer in Europe, which is the Schwartz Group, uh, who own Lidl, um, as well as a couple of other brands. Um, and we, we became the first independent platform in 2018 to bring the, not just the largest grocer in Europe online, but the discount channel. And right. that's, that's, that's really important to know because, again, the early research told me that there was three growth channels in the FMCG space for the foreseeable future. Fastest growing channel online, second fastest growing channel, discount channel, and third fastest growing convenience. So building a platform across those three pillars gave you this really powerful multiplier effect for growth it's it's so interesting the, the 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 crossover there between like the like i said the discounting model the and the the size of the business that are getting involved with this the how do you go about get, convincing these guys do you have to is is what's the what's the process like is that a, just because arduous and painful say, just trying to sell so <laughs> we're in the enterprise space now um with what me and my partners are trying to do and i mean 
we when we're selling to these uh, larger companies, we actually tr- we're selling to one of these um, these grocers uh, in Spain, one of these really big ones, mm-hmm. um, and they're thinking, okay, let's let's talk about let's have a timeline for you know eighteen months, uh, you know, before we check everything out. And I'm like, like yeah, and, you're like I've got and, six months runway. Yeah, exactly. We need to get going here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I've got a I've got a quarterly target. What's the story? You know, so I'm, I just can't imagine how how uh, arduous great, that would be. You know? Great question, and I think one of the biggest questions that I that I've thought a lot about over the last couple of years and it's been very relevant to us is that how do you align how do you align startup uh, and corporate interests because five weeks in we very quickly were completely mutually exclusive from corporate interests we were you know we had large corporate trying to kill us right and the only way to align interests is knowledge sharing and transparency at the very early days and the reason being is that you have to build trust and Corporates are, um, you know, they they can often make the very bad decisions as a collective, but it's mainly the bad decisions are driven because the individuals within the business do not understand or do not trust the information or the externalities that are at play. And so you as the founder, you as the startup and the driver of this innovation or whatever it might be or whatever you're trying to change, you need to be very upfront. You need to build relationships. You build, need to build champions within the corporate uh, environment to uh, understand, trust, and deliver your message into their internal stakeholders. Um, and to do that, you have to, you have to be transparent. You have to be very, very clear and very open. You have to knowledge share um, because that's the only way to truly build trust. If you hold your cards too close to your chest, um, the, the people on the other side will sense that and they will they will not put their cock on the block yeah that's for be- lack of a better term yeah. and that will that will become a, a barrier for uh, for progress um, and when you when you build that credibility when you build that trust and you build that rapport you can then start to explain why the timelines need to be a certain way why this needs to happen this way you know so that they understand the externalities that you're dealing with uh, whether it be trying to get funding trying to get investment trying to extend runway whatever it might be um, and it, it's a careful line because you can't can't scare them you know you can't sometimes you can't tell them exactly oh god this is you know weeks away from failing um, and i've certainly been in that situation you know a good example of this is that i ran out of like by me died in 2017 june 2017 we ran out of money um, and i remember sitting in say you were just tapped out nothing left yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 had we had spent the hundred grand that we raised, um, and we were revenue generating for the beginning, so that kept us going for a little bit longer than twelve months, which was our initial runway. Um, but June twenty seventeen, I found myself uh, having paid my only other shopper, Shane, paid his salary for the week, um, and I found myself with twelve hundred euros left in the account. Um, and at that stage, I uh, sat in a Starbucks in Stillorgan for the entire day, um, just refreshing the bank account. And the reason I was refreshing the bank account was that I had spent eight to 12 months prior building a relationship with Unilever. And I was trying you know, I, I really focused on knowledge sharing, really focused on sharing the insights, the data, the trends that we were seeing in the consumer market. While one retailer was trying to kill us, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was trying to strike up relationships and, and, and understand why does retail not want us? You know, what, 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 I don't quite understand it. Um, and so uh, during that time, uh, we got to a point where, you know, I was very upfront with Unilever. I said, look, you know, really enjoyed collaborating, really enjoyed working with you guys and sharing these insights, but I'm about to run out of money in three months time. And so this party is going to come to a stop real quick uh, and I'm going to have to go back to work. Um, and so after kind of a lot of kind of working it out, um, they decided to invest uh, 100,000 euros into the company. 
and buy three percent of the of the business. Nice. Um, and so at half four on in June twenty seventeen on that fateful day, and um, the hundred k landed in the business, and that gave me enough to keep going. Perfect. And um, you know, six months after that, Amazon bought Whole Foods, and then I was able to pull together a seed round. I was able to bring in some really heavy hitters from the retail space. Uh, that helped me build trust and credibility with with the retail market, and and that's how we kind of got it going. And um, so yeah, long answer to your question. Sorry about that. No, but, no, it's it's yeah. all part of the narrative as well because people are listening here and they're trying to put put the the piece together. A lot of our listeners are, listeners are entrepreneurs or you know even salespeople, or whatever, and they're trying to put together uh, business plans like this. And to hear that you are like even though right now I know that you've been funded recently and all that type of stuff, but there was a time where you were you know. Uh, down to the last twelve hundred uh, euro there. Yeah. Uh, when it was, what was the? Were, were you thinking at that stage? Maybe this is something that I'll have another crack at another time. Or were you thinking about? Were Were you angry that you spent this um, this year? No, I, I, I wasn't angry. Disappointed is is probably the better term. Okay. Um, but you know, buy me is my fifth run around. So I'm a little probably a, you know I've 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 sat with failure dealt with him and moved on in the past and so you know staring him in the, in the face again in, in june 2017 was just like greeting an old friend more than anything else and you know we've been there before and it was more of a disappointment in the sense that if we couldn't get this deal done if we couldn't continue i would feel uh, sad that we, you know we weren't going to be able to continue the journey and um, but i probably would not have revisited it and um, you know sometimes if you if you find yourself facing an insurmountable hurdle um, and it can be it can be the best idea in the world if the timing is wrong mm-hmm. then it's just not going to fly and you should take it behind the barn and shoot it yeah, you know yeah. so it's you know cuz because you you are not an infinite game you know you have 75 years to 80 years you've probably got 15 to 20 really good cracks at this so spend your time wisely and if the timing isn't right for the project that you're working on, then, you know, kill it and move on because, you know, there's other opportunities that might be better placed and you could do far better, far faster um, to, to spend your time on that. So um, if, if we hadn't been able to get that capital to continue going, then I, I probably would have moved on. Um, and, you know, fast forward four years, I'd be just fine. I'd be doing something else. I'd probably be excited and, 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 and enjoying. Um, but yeah it just you know fate had us that you know we were able to get that capital in and and we would continue on the journey and we made it to the point where the time was right um, and there's been a couple of things like that so the amazon whole foods deal was one for example and um, you know that 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 helped us get our first enterprise retail partner into the market and um, we've certainly now become i would say it's somewhat of a catalyst you know in the market where our growth our trajectory, our narrative, our information, knowledge sharing in the in sector at a C level and at an industry level has started to move and um, the way people are thinking about this space and this opportunity. Um, and then COVID happened. That's another perfect example, another another unforeseen black swan event um, that shapes the way industry works. And I mean, it could have easily been another event that killed us completely, you know, um, but but these are the types of events that happen in the market and you have to navigate them as best as you can. And that's a, another interesting point when the with when covid happened like that have you how has that in, impacted the business have you seen was it more or less than you thought it was going to be are people uh, getting it uh, quicker are they you know is it is, has retention gone up because people are like i don't want to go catch this so you know what was the, sure. the impact um so i mean obviously there was a there was a surge um, I think that was really, really well documented within the press across both Ireland and the UK what became very apparent is that the traditional uh, grocery online sector is not built for scale. And um, the covers got pulled back very quickly. 
Uh, and almost every grocer in Ireland, UK, has to come back and say, we can't scale. Unfortunately, we can't add any more. Uh, we can add some, but not much more capacity to the market. And that, again, comes down to the capital intensive nature of the market. They have to buy warehouses, buy vans, you know, like all of this slow process. And, um, you know, we were able to scale our business 300% in, in a matter of weeks um, because we don't have to buy vans. We don't have to buy warehouses. We are a platform operator. All we care about is data and cash flow. And we, we trade these two commodities to, to facilitate um, the delivery of, of the items. All of our shoppers use their own car, their own smartphone, these assets that are already in the market. Yeah. We use grocery stores as distribution centers. We don't build warehouses. You know, we sweat the assets in the market harder um, to create more life for the, or, for the retailer, more life for the consumer market. Um, and so, yes, it was, again, it was an interesting opportunity for us to see how consumers, because the big change in consumers was all of a sudden we were booked out seven days in advance. Okay. You know, whereas previously 90% of our volume was done within the day. Um, and then all of a sudden we, we were booked out uh, weeks in advance. And the biggest challenge as a startup, as a business, and um, what we did is we had, had 45,000 downloads in the space of five weeks, all of new customers rushing in, stealing slots away from Long, long-standing customers yeah, okay. um, and that can actually damage retention in the long run um, and so what you would have seen is you've seen a lot of businesses curtailing uh, new customer demand um, to try and pr- protect their existing customer base and make sure that those customers could continue to be serviced because ultimately what you don't want is a bunch of first-time users coming in and using your service once during a, a, a period of emergency crisis and um, but actually stopping the customers who built your business over the last four or five years and um, you don't want them all of a sudden being blocked out of the market and, and, and ultimately they might go somewhere else. And so there's a there's an interesting dynamic there for, for a startup to have to deal with. It's, it's and, and Devin, sorry, Luke, who, yeah. who's actually doing the deliveries and do you see any advancements, you know, in, in the, the delivery service? We're looking at drones and stuff like that now. What's your what's yeah? Bobby Healy's out there doing all sorts of stuff with uh, with drone delivery. So, um, yeah, I mean, technology is going to play an important role in this, but um, I think people have a habit of uh, expecting too much too soon. Um, so you know, Mana is doing some really cool stuff in the um, hot food delivery space, but it's still really early doors. Have they done um, anything with Camellia? And uh, no, I think what happened, I think unfortunately, I think what happened with the COVID crisis was that it, it kind of created a, a little bit of a, a blocker, a time delay. It's not that it won't work, it'll absolutely will work. Um, but it's just this whole process has kind of slowed down the process. And it's because it's still early in its regulation piece. You know, there's still lots to be worked out within, within the MANA you know, offering. I love what they're doing. I think it is the future for hot food delivery for sure within specific areas. I think it won't work in urban zones. You can't fly drones around, you know, buildings and city centers. It'll be great for adding more convenience to more uh, rural areas. Mm. That's where it's going to be a real sweet spot, and that's a massive, that's green field as far as uh, as far as um, food delivery is concerned, because it's the most inefficient area to service, uh, which is out in the rural communities, because mm. the distances between stores and, and and customers is just enormous. And so, I think they're going to do really cool stuff there. And remember, for drones, you need a certain thrust weight ratio. So your average hot food delivery is probably going to be five kilos. You know, so you're going to have a drone can lift that. And, and, and with battery power today, battery technology, you'll be able to do specific distances. And uh, your average grocery order is 15 kilos. Um, and so you'd need a bloody big drone and a bloody big yeah. battery. And today that's just not feasible. Also, the idea of a 15 kilo weight dropping out of the air um, is probably going to be slightly more of a regulatory uh, hurdle. But autonomous road-based drones, I think, will absolutely be a part 
grocery distribution future. Um, but we are significantly far away from having uh, free form autonomous vehicles on the road um, uh, that will be able to, to handle that kind of uh, service. So what I see us at the moment doing is actually building the foundation um, over the next five to 10 years uh, of what's to come. And having the infrastructure that we put in place, which is you know a data view of the market, uh, shared infrastructure, retailer shared software infrastructure, technology data sphere, um, and 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 ultimately an overarching algorithm that can optimize distribution for the market as a whole, they that will be the uh, the precursor, as we said before, um, for 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 the new layer of technology that comes, whether that be dark stores and and uh, autonomous vehicles. It's it's so interesting. So Mark, so when we're talking about this, are we talking about being able in a future to say um once this really catches on and like there's going to be maybe even in the future there might be the majority of people doing their shopping this way will it be the kind of the sharing economy where there'll be lots of people that are kind of making money on the side they're doing this part-time um on the the food deliveries because me and mark are both uh ex-teenage chinese food deliveries <laughs> when we were uh, when we, i was using my mom's car to deliver her, her peugeot 206 to <laughs> deliver chinese but yeah the whole process was so inefficient because i had to go in like random chinese and ask them do they need a delivery driver and then they paid me cash and i had a float float it was all it was, it was mayhem but yeah my point is 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 that is that where the future is going where people can kind of use this as a extra piece of income or are they going to be actual employees so i think it's interesting so the gig economy is a global mega trend and um, you know and this has again been facilitated by platform um um economics yeah you know all of a sudden you have these aggregate platforms that facilitate labor access in a way that's never been done before and the big challenge you have today is that most of our labor laws were actually written post-World War II. Okay. For an organizational economy, right? We wrote these laws. That, like, if you think back to the Industrial Revolution, right? The first corporates, the Ford Motor Company, and um, the John D. Rockefeller Oils, the Carnegie Steels, there was carnage of a labor market. There was no unions. There was no employee uh, legislation, nothing. It was just, it was absolute carnage. And, um, you know, you had... Um, uh, the, the Pinkertons, which was a, a kind of a private law law force, this is the early early 1900s. Uh, Pinkerton law force arriving up and shooting strikers outside uh, factories in the U.S. Okay, so we're talking about the wild wild west. And what happened in the in the in the uh, in the 50 to 60 years that that followed was that we created employment law and um, structured around the industrial revolution and what we saw, which is organizational economy and infrastructure. Um, and then obviously our government and politics and everything is built around that. But that happened in a linear fashion. So organizational economy, if you look at, um, you look at uh, the stock price of, let's say the top retailers, top 500 retailers in the US, right? Their growth curve goes like this. Okay, yeah. nice linear trajectory. And that's because it's a linear market, right? And what linear is to explain is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Linear progression, right? Yep. Easy to track. Um, growth in technology is exponential. One, two, four, eight, sixteen. You know, thirty yep. steps, you're at a billion. And so, if you look at Amazon stock price versus the top retailers, it's like this. It's just right. Yeah. And what that means is that for legislative environments, which are built around human interaction, lobbying, linear development, understanding, academic research, is all of a sudden you have a, a commercial, private, and uh, technology-driven industry just completely outpacing um, the linear world of, 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 of policy and, and, and legislation. And so the, the knee-jerk reaction um, from governments is fear, 
holy shit, we can't control it. Shoot first, ask questions later. Let's kill this and move on. In actual fact, what we need to do is completely revisit our, our employee legislation and understand what does it mean to be an employee in the, in the, in the, in the centuries that are to come. Um, is technology going to change the way in which labor is accessed? Absolutely. Has it changed globally? Absolutely. Um, and so, so at times we kind of just need to recognize that. Um, there's a bunch of you know, uh, armchair economics economists out there that will you know, write uh, uh, puff pieces and fear-mongering into, in, in, in the media to say that large corporates are trying to you know, decimate the, the employee base. Actually, most of the time, these platforms are being built by humans who have you know, morals and care and want to build you know, great businesses and, and, and do good. Um, but a lot of the time, it's hindered to act in a specific way. Um, for for specific um, employee models that today are completely outdated, um, and so what we're starting to see now is actually I think an opportunity to revisit how um, how labour is accessed and where value is shared across um, across markets. Um, I think that's going to be probably the biggest single biggest discussion that's going to happen, particularly after the back of COVID, um, is how value is shared across markets and economies, uh, how how wealth is distributed, um, and ultimately what legislation do we need to put in place to be able to facilitate that type uh, because it's, it's 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 i think the big part and now if you look at what came out of davos you know recently and um, sustainability uh, investment is going to be a core of it i think the ceo of blackrock for example you know came out and said that sustainability is actually going to be one of the core tenets of how they invest in businesses going forward do they have a focus do they have respect and do they have intent uh, to invest in sustainability we're not just talking about climate sustainability we're talking about you know, sustainable, uh, you know, capitalism. Um, and I think that's going to be a big part of the discussion going forward. So um, the question to your, uh, the answer to your question, which is, um, you know, do we see um, being employees? Do we see a gig workers? I think it's going to be a blend of both. Um, I think you're going to see different parts of the infrastructure, different parts of the supply chain will work really well for what we see as traditional employees today. Um, and other parts will work well for uh, that more flexible income style. I grew up as a contractor as well. I worked for, you know, FMCG, you know, driving around doing promotions and handing out cans of Coke and all sorts of stuff in my early years. It worked really well. It worked around my college schedule. Yeah. Um, um, but would I get a mortgage on it? Would I build a career off it? Absolutely not. Yeah. It's for a certain part of my life at a certain time. Um, so that's, I think that's the important way in which, you know, people have to kind of look at it. I think I agree with you completely as well, because what we're really trying to do is tap into all that, all that slack capacity that, that's there. Right. So people are, yeah. you know, they want to they want to say if they have, they might have a career, but they want, they have three hours in the evening where they're not doing anything. They might as well be delivering, you know, food or whatever. Um, I think yeah, absolutely. In, in Canada, when I, I worked there for a few years, I found that the, the ability for companies to turn over staff and everyone to kind of buy into that was great because it meant that you come in, you come in maybe for six months, you do a job, you get another great piece of uh, experience on your CV, then they'd let you go. Two weeks later, uh, you go off to Thailand or something. Come back two years, two weeks later, you're better off. You have a, a new job as well. It's all like there was a great like uh, diamond, uh, like a dynamic uh, kind of vibe going on in the economy because people were moving jobs so much that there wasn't the kind of they have kind of strict laws on labor, labor there, but not like Ireland, not like it's mm. like you're either an employee or uh, you know whatever. So I think as well, contractor. Things, yeah, contractor. So I think that uh, that's probably going to change going forward as well. It has to with the the way things are. Moving, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, we're just getting to a point where it's, it's with that without actually putting in place new dynamic models of legislation, you're going to have people that slip through the crack. 
because it's going to work really well for some people. It's going to work really well for some businesses, but there's going to be people that are going to be in the midst, in the middle of that spectrum that can't get support that they need. Um, and that won't be, that won't be because platforms don't want to provide it. It'll be because they legally can't. Absolutely. Um, is there, so just to bring, so let's go, we went from the, the beginning, we went through the kind of the, the, the dip as well. We're waiting for the, the cash to come in from uh, Unilever, all type of stuff. Where is the business now uh, over the last couple of months? I know that there's uh, been some investment. Is that coming from somewhere in Ireland? Is it in the UK? Where's the where's the business right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, so we, it's funny, because um, we announced obviously a funding round um, in about three weeks ago. And a lot of people were like, oh, you know, COVID has created this amazing opportunity for you guys and you're able to raise this round funding. Funding raise, fundraiser doesn't work like that. You know, I've been working on that fundraise since July of last year. Okay. Um, and it was, you know, it was worth, you know, we had eight different investors involved. Um, it more or less been structured uh, in November and December. And it just happened to close uh, in, in Q1 of this year in, in the midst of all of this crisis. A lot of people, yeah, it looks like an overnight success, but actually, you know, there was a huge amount of work done in the dark um, that, that, you know, ultimately got us to that position to be able to do that. Had we not done that work, I don't think we would have been able to close around the funding as quickly as we did in the way in, in the way that we did um, uh, or as or with the level of the quality of investors that we did. Um, so this funding came from, uh, it was led by ACT, uh, which is a you know, really well-known, respected uh, venture capital firm here in Ireland. Um, we also had you know, really great input from uh, Sure Valley Ventures, uh, which is an Irish uh, fund that is uh, a spin out from Shard Capital, which is a, a UK entity, a large wealth management company. Um, and then we also have really strong investment from our existing shareholders. And, um, you know, so, you know, we have uh, Eamon Quinn, who's our chairman, and um, Scott Weavers-Wright, who's the ex-CEO for Morrisons.com. Uh, he runs his own uh, venture vehicle called Hatch Ventures. And, um, you know, they've been probably, they, you know, between Scott and Eamon, they've been our earliest investors. They invested alongside Unilever back in 2016. 2017 um, and they've they've invested in every round of funding that we've done um, and as of uh, as of uh, this latest round we've raised about five and a half million in funding um, since Amazing. since our inception um, so that's quite incredible uh, to in, in that sense um, but we've been on a very difficult funding journey to be to be very clear Ireland does not have a consumer a, fr- a consumer business friendly investor market you have to achieve you have to overachieve. Um, to be able to raise capital as a consumer business in um, in, the, in the Irish market. And that's because you know Ireland is a small island. Typically, most of our consumer markets are too small to sustain large consumer uh, venture plays. Yeah. Um, it just so happened that grocery is a 9 billion euro market in Ireland alone. Um, and so if you're going to do a consumer play in Ireland that has a chance of working, grocery is not a bad place to be. Um, and so uh, you know we've done every type of fundraising you can think of friends and family which i believe every every entrepreneur should start with a friends and family round and the reason being it's the easiest capital to get to because it comes with love Uh, and two when you sit in front of a stranger and ask them for their money being able to show them that you're willing to have an awkward christmas is a great way to give them a sense that you're committed to this right it's easy to lose strangers money it's not easy to lose you know nanny's money yep right percent so um, I raised 25,000 friends and family. Not, I'm not talking like 100,000 euros from your family. If you've got a really rich family, great. Um, you know, I pulled together 25,000, um, five grand of my own money and, 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 and 20,000 from a, probably about eight or nine different friends um, uh, in the first round. Um, Enterprise Ireland is great for, for pre-seed capital as well. They've invested in us three times, um, upwards of 600,000 now. Oh, wow. um, 
and we've also done crowdfunding. So we did a crowd round in, in 2017 where we raised uh, 180,000 euros um, uh, from UK, primarily UK investors uh, through Crowdcube. Um, so we've done friends and family, we've done government, we've done corporate, uh, we've done crowd, and, and now we've done venture. Um, so any, like, whatever, if there was any channel to try and get capital, I was going to go after it and see if I could do it. Um, and it's been a tremendous experience. I would say everyone should try and understand all the various places in which you can, you can source capital for an early stage venture. Um, and so, yeah, we've now found ourselves, um, you know, I would say well capitalized. You know, 2019 was a period of extreme growth for us. It was all about scalability. You know, we grew our weekly sales from low five digit sales on a month, maybe 25 grand a month to seven figures in 12 months. Wow. Seven figure monthly sales. I mean, oh. we grew we grew our weekly volume 2000% in a year. Um, it, I mean, it just doesn't even sound real, those numbers, right? Mm. Yeah. Exponential growth kind of yeah. sounds familiar, right? Platform economics at play. Yeah. Um, exactly. And so um, it's really interesting now that we've, uh, you know, we got we came out of the gates pretty hot in, in January. We were growing 18% week on week. Then COVID happened. Boom. We did a week's worth of volume in one day, the day that they closed the schools and the, the offices. Um, you know, we then had to completely reset our expectations commercially and financially. So we knew that we were, in a, we were going to be in a position of sharp growth, probably faster than we initially anticipated. We were, we were set up for a pretty good year this year, but we knew that we were going to have a, a, a big growth challenge for us and that we were going to have to overcome. So, you know, uh, resetting our, our financial strategy, our funding strategy and our commercial strategy to, to go after it. Um, and then closing this round of funding with, you know, some of the best investors in the market and, you know, some of the biggest venture capital firms uh, in Ireland. Um, I feel it's, it's, it's certainly given us um, the support and the stakeholders we need to really make a good go of this. But it's not a guaranteed success, right? You know, we're still a startup. We're still playing in a big world of very large businesses. Um, but, you know, we're now working with some of the largest corporates in the world in this space. Uh, we're sharing knowledge. We're building innovation. We're tr transforming supply chain in a very fundamental way. Um, and I think if anyone's going to make a success of it, we've got a bloody good chance of doing it. Um, but we're going to have just we're going to have to continue to grind it out, and that's going to be a big, big part of the process. And and is the focus on Ireland and the UK? Is it or is it just Ireland right now? Yeah. So we um, we actually just formally announced that we launched in Bristol two days ago on Thursday. Nice. Um, so we uh, actually have just signed a partnership with the Co-op, which is you know top five yeah. grocery retailer in the in the UK. Um, that's our second enterprise retail partnership um, uh, to date, and and we've just launched our second city for the first time, which is Bristol in the UK. Why Bristol? Um, um, good question. So it's um, so most people think, you know, why wouldn't you go to London? Well, there's only one London, yeah. but there's 15 Bristols. Exactly. And so if you can make it work in a Bristol, it's far more likely that you can make it work in a Manchester, Leeds, a Liverpool, Birmingham, um, uh, and the rest. Um, London is is a noisy and competitive space. Um, and that's something that we feel that, it, I mean, certainly an opportunity for us and we will be in London. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we launched and learned the market as best as we could before going into what is, a, you know, a really big uh, heated uh, market. Um, and yeah, Bristol's very similar to Dublin, same population density, uh, same network structure of stores for distribution, and um, same demographics of consumers. So our demographic is young, 25 to 35, 35 to 44. So either young professionals or young families um, living primarily in semi-detached houses and apartments. 
um, typically ABC one consumers um, with um, you know higher higher earning status but low low time uh, availability. Um, so yeah, so it's it's about understanding where your channel, where your where your where your product might fit best, uh, fit best, but ultimately learning. Um, and and that's that's part parcel of, of launching into a new market. It's understanding how how do you build your playbook for expansion. And uh, once you get it right in your second city, then you, you know fifteen cities becomes a bit more of a potato printer. What a what a huge opportunity living so close to the, the UK is as well. Some, that we talked about with a few different people. It's like mass massively so. Um, and I always look at Ireland as a great a great springboard, a great training ground. Um, for anything that you want to do in the UK, because we're very, very similar consumer dynamics, very similar structures of, of behaviors. Um, and many of the services that we have in, in the UK, we also have in Ireland in a, a smaller scale. Um, and so we always saw Ireland as a, as a great test, but it also put us in a very unique position because, you know, there's there's a couple of large players in this space. There's one Instacart uh, based out of the US. They're a, a 13 and a half billion euro platform. Um, you know, they, they did a two and a half million series A in 2014, where I, when I first saw them, um, and and now they're doing uh, north of 20 billion a year in sales, um, and so I mean just an enormous platform, growth. really That's winning crazy. in that space. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, a couple of other players in Europe, but what's really interesting is that we're so well placed in for, and the largest and fastest growing markets in grocery commerce are UK and Ireland. Nice. Um, and so we're we're in a position to really really be a very strong player in the space, and our our ambitions is to be the number one aggregate shared grocery infrastructure in Europe. Um, and to do that, establishing strong beachheads in Ireland, the UK, uh, certainly gives you a good foothold um, to be able to build that type of ambition. Um, so yeah, so I, th- I think we're very fortunate to be in the market that we're in. And, and you know, a lot of people think, a lot of people think uh, an idea is a passport to worldly wealth, when in actual fact, it's just the application form. And, and execution is everything that matters and when you're if it doesn't matter whether your idea is uh, and there's no such thing as original ideas anymore but how you execute in your local market is what's going to be what's going to separate you from from the rest and you know what i often find with entrepreneurs and, and i certainly was guilty of this is that they don't want to talk about their idea or they want you to sign an nda or they're afraid that someone's going to steal their idea whenever i hear that it tells me that um you haven't done enough research because if you're worried that someone hears your idea in passing and go, is going to go off and execute it better, than, well, the fact is, if someone does hear your idea in passing and goes off and executes it better than they than you did, they fucking deserved it, you know? <laughs> exactly. uh, because an idea is nothing, and, and you're not the only one thinking about it, for, for sure. There's seven billion of us on this planet, um, and we all have ideas. It's who goes off and actually executes it effectively is what matters. Um, and so I highly encourage people to go out there, talk about their ideas, don't be afraid. Um, if anything, you know the likelihood of someone picking your idea up. Like most people, don't don't do business, don't start businesses. So that's your that's the first hurdle that protects you. You know, ninety nine percent of people can't pick up the phone to talk to a stranger about an idea that they've had, and so you're probably going to be pretty safe. Yeah, absolutely. I think somebody told us. I don't know if it was on this podcast or someone, maybe another podcast I was listening to that uh, business ideas are like children. People like to hear about them, but they don't want to raise them. Like, you know, <laughs> so yeah, very uh, much so. Great. They don't want to take care of children. Anyway, uh, so like it's. I think that might be the might be the title of this podcast. Well, execution is all that matters. <laughs> I love it. We like to kind of get like a soundbite and then drive that home. I like it. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so, Mark, this is kind of the traditional thing. Like we're pushing time here, Mark. So maybe pick two or yeah. three questions mark likes to get these kind of these questions and we kind of aggregate them um as well for like, across the, all of our guests just a bit of fun sure here, uh, at the end of the podcast 
Yeah, right. Kind of quick fire. So the, the kind of first thing that comes to your head. So what's your favorite social media and why? Instagram. I like, I'm a very visual person. So I, I like the, I like the visual nature of, of Instagram um, for, cause yeah, I don't like comments. So I find that I find myself being less perturbed by shitty people in the comment section because I'm primarily just looking at the images. Um, so from a, from a social engagement standpoint, I'm, I'm definitely an Insta uh, fan. Yeah, your stories are great. Very consistent. Ah, thank you very well. much. <laughs> Cheers. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so what time do you get up at in the morning and what time do you go to sleep? It depends. It depends on the day. Um, so, I mean, if I, uh, you know, I, the last couple of weeks have been quite intense. So I'd find myself be on the phone from half eight um, and I'd probably finish at about half seven, eight o'clock. Um, and then I completely switch off as, as best as I can, depending on the day. If there's something that's time sensitive, then it could it can run into late at night. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really kind of tie myself to a specific timeline. I'm always thinking, oh, should I be getting up at 5 a.m. and, and doing all this sort of kind of sort of stuff? But Jocko really Willing, so. Yeah, I haven't really gotten into it. I have a good friend, Garrett Flower, who's a big fan of the 5 a.m. club. Um, and it, it definitely has it has some attractions. But um, yeah, I've, uh, yeah, it really depends on the day for me. How much money is enough money? Question. Um, technically, two hundred grand in a pension is enough money. If, if you could put two hundred grand into a pension today, you're a guaranteed millionaire at retirement. I like that idea. Guaranteed. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of people think, oh, 10 million, 15 million, 20 million. You know, now two hundred thousand euros in a pension uh, before before you're thirty five will guarantee you to be a millionaire at retirement. Great it's, it's compound interest. <laughs> yeah, it's a fact. Yeah. Um, it's also the most tax efficient way. So, you know, a lot of people ignore pensions. And the problem is that most people don't get pension advice until they're over 35 earning, you know, close to six figures. And um, in fact, you know, if you, if you, you can put after over 30, you can put 15% of your salary into your pension completely tax-free. 15% of your gross salary can go into your pension before the tax man gets a, a sniff in it. Um, and if you can save up 200 grand, if you can get 200K into your pension before you're 40, um, in between 35 and 40, you're, you're, you're set. So I would say that's probably enough because that means that you'll never be flipping burgers when you're 60. Yeah. And that's ultimately the question that you're asking yourself. I don't want to flip burgers when I'm 60. And yeah. the burger being the, you know, yeah. whatever it is administration sitting at a desk whatever it might be um and so yes yeah, so that would probably be for me that's that's enough um, yeah. um that doesn't necessarily mean i don't have an ambition for more but um that would be enough that's a great answer yeah but there's diminishing returns as well after you earn a certain amount of money you know happiness wise the happiness index yeah right i mean i think i think 75 80k or something and it probably depends on, on where you live yeah i don't believe in san francisco <laughs> if you're living in san francisco i don't think 75k is going to be is going to cut the mustard yeah. um but yeah no there's definitely uh, there's definitely a, a a relaxing correlation between uh, financial gain and, and, and true reward true happiness and um, you know i think Money, I, and I, I think one of the big reasons why um, I failed in my last couple of businesses was I was primarily driven by financial reward, and it was the idea of just building a business and, and selling it or whatever it might be. Um, and I find what I found is with this with this one, I've become far more missionary, we'll say, than mercenary, um, because I actually am I'm really passionate, really obsessed with just how how much trouble this sector is in and how much it needs kind of, you know, some development and new ideas. So I'm really enjoying that aspect of it. And I, I like to think that 
if you're if you're really passionate, really enjoying what you're doing, and actually have a genuine interest in the problems that you're trying to solve, that money should probably be a byproduct. Yeah, I agree. Fully agree. Here's a big one. What do you fear? Oh, great question. Um, not being able to provide for my family. It's probably the big fear. Um, so, you know, being able to be in a position to provide for my family to the future is probably the, the main one. Um, I'm, 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 but that, then again, it's probably irrational because I know I'm reasonably employable. Um, mm. So that's, again, it's most, most fear is irrational. Um, and most fear is actually what stops people from starting businesses in the first case. You know, it's a fear of failure. It's a fear of what your peers are going to think about you. Um, and and, and sometimes, sometimes it's the fear of actual, what will I do if I succeed? And um, I have a genuine fear sometimes that if, uh, if I actually do manage to get to where I want to go uh, in life, in my career, um, you know, will I be unhappy because I've spent so long chasing that, that, that goal? And if I don't have to chase it anymore, who am I? You know, yeah. what is that going to mean for my happiness in my life? Am I going to be able to garden, you know, <laughs> um, or will I, will I have this deep sense of, of uh, something missing because I've, I've kind of programmed myself to be, you know, in, on this, on this journey. And um, so, yeah, sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to understand how it's going to play out in the long run. Um, but I think being mindful of it uh, and try to enjoy the journey as best as possible is probably the best yep. way you can um, manage it. Yep. Um, one more. Here, who, let's 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 get. This okay, two more, two more, two more. Right? Is it who you know or what you know? It's both. It's one hundred percent both. Like it's not definitely not one or the other because most of the time, uh, the who's who help you uh, are there because of what you've told them. <laughs> <laughs> really, realistically, um, I've been very lucky. Uh, I have stood on the shoulders of some tremendous people who have helped helped me get to where I am. Uh, mentors, board members, investors. Um, but the only reason that I was able to bring them uh, in on the journey was because of the the information that I shared with them and the, the research I'd done and the evidence I was able to present that that convinced them that they wanted to come on the journey with me. Um, so yeah, I would say it's both. If you could advise someone to learn one skill, what would it be? Uh, sales. Love Very that correct. answer. Uh, with the sales background, I think I couldn't agree more. You're, yeah. People are, are going to be salespeople, whether they like it or not. They might as well uh, get good at it. You know. Well, think think about it. I mean, there is no there is no task in your life that involves other humans that doesn't involve sales or influence of some kind. Yeah. You know, uh, whether it's trying to buy that car, whether it's trying to get someone to support you uh, in a business or in an internal project at work, you're trying to influence their belief and trying to get them to align with your your goals, and um, and that is a sales process. You know, I've. Um, I, I've uh, had many jobs over my over my career. Um, I've been a shoe salesman and footlocker. That was my very first job. Um, I've been a door to door electricity salesperson, uh, selling. And that was, I mean, if you want to, if you want to know sales, door to door selling, door to door contracts, or anything door to door is gonna. Like, I nearly got maced one time, <laughs> and I feel like that's that's a reasonable benchmark of whether you've been in a real sales job. Um, and uh, and learning how to deal with various personalities, how to build rapport quickly. Um, and how to also, most importantly, craft a story that that, that uh, people can connect to, I think is the most fundamental. And if you wanted to, if you wanted to, because uh, if you say a task that everyone should learn, you say sales, people go, Ugh, I hate sales. Yeah. You know, a lot of people like, have this aversion. Okay, let me rephrase it. Storytelling. Yeah. It's the same, same thing. You just sold that right? to me. <laughs> In a, in a yeah, way. same thing, but yeah. slightly less. Uh, people have slightly less adverse reaction to it. Hundred percent. It's it's something like you know when I've I don't have any children right now, but um, 
when I am raising kids, I'm going to be focused on that as well. That kind of inf- trying to be influential, try to kind of get people around. Sometimes I, I, I'm in a room or I go to a restaurant or, and I see all the decor and I think, you know, someone sold all this. This is like no one yeah. just had an idea and bought it, whether it's selling through marketing or selling directly. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's all about, it's all about, you know, crafting a story um, or a narrative about a specific product or a goal or a mission or whatever it might be. And um, that, that, you know, gets people to believe in what you're doing. Um, and, and they want to be a part of it, whether I want to be a part of buying your furniture that you're making. It's beautiful, handcrafted artistry um, or whether it's Ikea where it's really efficient, it's cost effective. You know, it's it's all about crafting that story. And I think all, all of us as individuals in way, one way or another um, to, to really succeed in life, you need to be able to tell stories that people can engage and buy into um, and who, you know, people who want to, to work with you in one way or shape or form. Perfect. Uh, well, Devin Hughes, thank you very much for joining us today on the Shark Pod. Incredibly interesting. I, I can't I can't imagine how big this thing could be. It's almost like too big to think about. Um, but I think there's a huge one day at a time. One day. <laughs> one day at a time. time. One, one basket of groceries tomorrow. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my uh, groceries later on uh, from the app, which is uh, gonna be a game changer for me. Um, I'm not gonna go line up and uh, have to get. Uh, you know, when you're going to Aldi or the, the whole thing where you have to get uh, sprayed down all your, your stuff before you go in all that. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it I'm finished with it uh, Devin thanks very much for, for joining us today okay thanks, thanks very much for having me lads cheers and we are